Hi, I'm Bethany, and I'm on a journey of discovering what loving oneself actually looks like. I want to invite you into my process, hear some of my crazy stories, as well as hear some amazing people with wisdom and insight give their take on what it looks like to love yourself well, and in turn be able to love people well too. Come on, let's go. Welcome back to episode 15 of Like Me, Like You. Uh, In the last episode, I was just starting to dive into uh, the humanity of funeral directing and the humanity of being a funeral director and balmer and my experiences uh, with families and mourning and grieving and loss um, in a time where the unexpected happens. The, the worst, that, and that's how I would explain it to fam- people. I, you know, when I would introduce myself and people, you know, in the United States, well, in Western society for the most part, people ask two questions when they don't know you. They ask, what's your name? And then they ask, what do you do? Um, and for some reason, uh, it means a lot to people in Western world. Um, to know what you do for a living. Your identity is wrapped up in your job. And I actually fell for that hook, line, and sinker for the longest time. Um, And I realized I gained a lot of, I don't, maybe attention. I gained a lot of like response from people when they found out what I did for a living. I started to tie my identity to my, my title. I was a licensed funeral director and balmer crematory operator, right? So uh, you don't hear that often. You definitely don't see a woman do that often, let alone a young woman. That's just a taboo thing across the board. I can remember when Judah, my brother, would introduce me to people and he would kind of giggle because, you know, I have this type of a maybe bubbly sense of uh, sense of who I am. I have a bubbly personality. At the time, I was driving a Volkswagen Beetle convertible, which is just a bubbly car. Like everything about me was bubbly. And he would say to people who didn't know me that he knew, like, go ahead, ask her what she does for a living because he thought it was funny. So my identity was wrapped up into uh, what I did as a job because it was so rare. And I, I can remember them telling us in school They would say, um, remember, there are only a handful of people in the whole entire world that do what you do. Like that's a that's a that's a big thing. You know, not not a lot of people even understand the process of embalming, understand the process of um, taking care of a human remains. It's one of the last things you can do to be kind to someone. It's one of the last forms of compassion that you can give towards someone. Um, it is important to society as a whole uh, to take care of deceased, to, to, to honor them and take care of them. Um, so it's interesting when you run into people who don't, or it's interesting when you run into people who don't necessarily want to show the same compassion towards somebody who has passed away. Um, as a funeral director, every single time I would sit down across from a family in what we call an arrangements conference, which is the meeting with a family to decide what they would like to do. And families, for the most part, have full say. Um, even when people who have died sometimes plan their own services before they die. Unfortunately, by law, the legal next of kins don't even have to honor that. Um 
Sometimes, for the most part, 99% of the time they do because they want to honor what their loved one wanted, especially if they've paid for it already. They're like, well, yeah, let's just do whatever dad wanted because this makes it easy for me. Like, where do I need to sign? What needs to be updated? You know, sometimes people even went as far as to write their own obituaries. Um, And there was just a matter of updating, making sure information was current, uh, that sort of a situation. And so when you ran across someone who potentially didn't uh, feel that way, you know, you kind of really got this sense of maybe who this person was. It's it's interesting. There there are many times that, you know, I remember a lot in Georgia and, and in Chicago where you would have a person die and no one in the family wanted to take responsibility. No one would want to make plans, pay for services, or even sign any type of paperwork of even just like, yeah, Um, this was my uncle, you know, distant uncle. I don't, I didn't know him. You know what I mean? Like there are like, unfortunately, uh, stories of families who don't have people who care. And sometimes it's warranted. Like sometimes they were awful and that's why people don't want anything to do with them. You know, it's, it's a, a weird thing to be faced with mortality on a daily basis. And that's where I was. I was voluntarily jumping into people's trauma every day, multiple times a day. Uh, When I was a funeral director in Georgia, it was a funeral home. There were four locations. um, And they sometimes, I mean, you're talking, you know, 700 funerals a year. That's, That's multiple funerals a day, you know. And so you're meeting with families. Sometimes you're meeting, you have a meeting with a family that's two hours long. I get to like go and get information into the computer, get my file in order, and then I have to go sit down and meet with a new family and then do the whole entire thing all over again and then finally get that information in uh, what I needed and get it organized and get a file started. And then I'm meeting with another family and then I can quickly use the bathroom, sit down, have to like get that information. And it's like an all day thing. Unfortunately, you know, death doesn't come with uh with a regular uh, uh, flow to it. Sometimes, you know, it was kind of a good day when no, we didn't get any calls. And sometimes, unfortunately, we got five calls in the middle of the night. And sometimes, you know, it, it, it just went like that. It was a bummer. And, you know, holidays were not a joy anymore. I remember being a funeral director and having to be on call. And there's nothing worse than getting a call on Christmas. And having to be like, okay, I have to, somebody lost a loved one on Christmas. You know, for the most part, holidays can be a joyous time for a lot of people. But sometimes, man, it is tainted with a terrible memory and, and terrible feelings of loss and loneliness. Um, and it's being confronted with that all of the time. I can remember sitting down with a woman uh, who was elderly. She was beautiful. Her hair, she was meticulous. Her hair was beautiful. Her outfit was uh, put together. She had jewelry on. She had her makeup done. She looked She looked like walking um, money. She looked like she was very taken care of. She looked like she was well off. And, you know, I was working in a town that was a fairly small town. Everybody kind of knew everyone. I didn't know everyone because I was new. I was a transplant in. And so I can remember kind of getting the like, hey, you're going to meet with so- Mrs. So-and-so, you know? And I was like, all right, I'll meet with Mrs. So-and-so. And I was like, is there any other family coming? And they said, no, nope, she's just coming by herself. Or, you know, her husband is Mr. So-and-so. He did A, B, and C. He was known for this, this, and this. I said, okay. So I sat down with her. And, of course, 
she came in the office, was sitting across the table from me. I gave her my condolences. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry about your loss. You know, I've heard about your husband. I, you know, I heard about his accomplishments that he did this and this and this. And so she said, thank you very much. She was very, she wasn't cold, but she was very um, put together. And so I start to get that statistical information from her. Where was he born? What was his parents' name? What was his grandparents' name? What was his, his mother's maiden name? You know, and so on and so forth. And we're going through all this statistical information. Then it came to the point where it was about planning services. So I said, have, have you thought about um, planning services? I see you have, you know, multiple children with wives and multiple grandchildren it seems like he was very loved by the community. It seems like there's going to be a lot of people that want to pay their respects. Do you belong to a church anywhere? Would you prefer to have services there versus our chapel? It's bigger. And she just cut me off and she said, I'm having a simple, I want him cremated. I'm not having any services for him. And I was a little taken back. I was like, wow, like, whoa, this is a little cold, right? Like it felt cold. And so I just kind of like, I think she saw me hesitate and I was like, okay, y'all, like we'll provide whatever services that you would like, like whatever services you feel, if this is what he requested. And I said, I just want to make sure for his family's sake, are you sure that you don't want to give any opportunity, any opportunity for people to come and pay their respects? You know, and she looked at me across the table and she said, honey, he beat me for 50 years. She said, you can throw him in a ditch for all I care. And I can remember just sitting there like, whoa, like, Uh, And I just said, okay, absolutely. You want direct cremation? No problem. We'll take care of this for you. And here I was getting a piece of this woman's humanity where everyone else seems to be in the community like, just what a loss, Mr. So-and-so. He was such a pillar to the community. He was such an amazing, kind man. And he blah, 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 blah. And here I am in the privacy of an office sitting with someone who lived with him for 50 years. And he was a monster, actually, to her. She, she, he beat her. Like, you know, the memories that she has of him are uh, of fear and of hurt and of pain. And it was a constant reminder like that, that you actually don't know who people are and you don't know what other people are going through. You can assume a lot. I totally judged a book by its cover. She walked in, you know, she looked so put together. She just oozed of wealth because they were they were very wealthy you know she oozed of status and here she her the past 50 years of her life were miserable like absolute misery and to her this was freedom like how do you reconcile that with someone how do I sit across the table and convince this woman that this man should be celebrated for the sake of her children or the sake of the community? Who cares? Who cares about the community? Which luckily she was she was very set and she knew exactly what she was doing, which was absolutely nothing. And to be honest, I don't blame her. Why would you celebrate a man who brought absolute fear to your life for 50 years? I don't I don't know. I can remember another time. And this was a doozy. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. There was a man who came into the office and he was in, he was an older man, very Southern. This was in Georgia, super Southern, very thick accent, very gruff, very rough. And he was in suspenders, like a tank top and suspenders. Like picture an old Southern farmer. And that's, that's who this man was. And he was bow legged and he walked in and he said, I need to talk to somebody. And I was the only funeral director. And he was very aggressive and he was very rude and you could tell he had no politeness in him at all none 
And so he sits down with me and he said, I need to talk to somebody. And I said, okay. I said, I'm the funeral director here. How can I help you? And he said, I need to make plans for services. And I said, okay, for, is this for yourself? Is this for a family member? And he said, this is for me. And I said, okay. So we sat down and it's what we call pre-need. It means that I am providing um, a plan pre-death. So we are providing the need to plan plan services for him before he passes away. And so I'm sitting down and we're going through all of the things. And he's like, I want a two-day visitation. Like he wanted to be celebrated. I want a two-day visitation. I want a funeral. I want to be buried here. I want, this is what I want, the music played at my funeral. I want, which is a big thing down south was, I want that song, go rest high on that mountain. You know, <laughs> like the Vince Gill, like I will be a, I will be a delight to never hear that song ever again. I'm sorry, Vince Gill. It's just a song that I can't hear ever again. So um, so I'm like, okay, yeah. And so I said, now, is this something that you're paying for pre, like pre-services? Do you want monthly, uh, monthly payments to be made toward the services? Do you have a life insurance policy? How are you paying for these services? And he said, a life insurance policy. And I said, okay, do you have the life insurance policy? And he got really bent out of shape and he got really mad at me. And he said, why are you asking me this? He got super defensive. And I said, well, we need to be able to track and we need to be able to uh, file away exactly what it is and how you're going to be paying for things. And he said, my wife has a life insurance policy on me. And I said, "Okay." I said, she is paying for the life insurance policy or you're paying for the life insurance policy and she is the legal heir to this insurance policy. And he said, well, she's paying for it and she is she is the collector of it. And I said, "Okay, well, that is going to be have to be something that she agrees to, that she will use this life insurance policy to pay for your services. And he started to swear at me and curse at me and call me names. And he goes, you get her on the phone right now. You get this woman on the phone. And I said, well, I don't know who she is. So anyway, so I I called her and I said, hi, Mrs. So-and-so. My name is Bethany. I'm a funeral director at such and such funeral home. I'm making pre-need plans for Mr. So-and-so. And she said, okay. And I said, and what he is saying is that you have a life insurance policy that you are going to be using to pay for his services. And she said, ma'am, I have a restraining order against him. He is my ex-husband. He almost killed me once. And she said, I have a life insurance policy on him that I have been paying for, that I've had since we were married. We are no longer married. He is not allowed to contact me. I will not be using this life insurance policy to pay for anything. So I had to go back in the office, sit down with him and say, well, I talked to Mrs. So-and-so, and I didn't know she's not your wife. She's actually your ex-wife. And the life insurance policy that she has, she's actually put on you and has paid for and is uh, the heir to. So when you pass away, um, she gets all of the money from a life insurance policy that she's been paying into on you. Well, if you could imagine, here I've found out that this man is a wife abuser. He doesn't care about women. He... um, he almost killed her for Pete's sakes. This happened like years ago and um, had he had served prison time for assault. That sort of thing is now is out of prison is an old bachelor and he's sitting across from me in a room and we are by ourselves and he starts to like he's seething through his teeth. He starts to call me 
every awful name you could insult a woman with was like, you get her on the phone and you demand that she sign this. She will be paying for my funeral services. And he don't know this about me, but I don't like to be bossed around. So I like (laughs) I got a little spicy back and I just sat up and I said, I will not be calling anyone. You actually have no control over what I do and what I say. I just became super, super um, bossy. And I was like, as a matter of fact, this is what we'll be doing. I will hold this piece of information lightly, the information for your services planned. But if you don't come up with a way to pay for funeral services, these will not be the, the services provided. It will fall on your legal next of kin, who are your two sons. They will decide how and what way we take care of you after you pass away. And if all they can afford is cremation, we'll be cremating your remains and giving them the ashes. To which... He did not like it all. He stood up and he kind of like lunged at me. Luckily, uh, there are a couple males that we just keep at the funeral home that are just guys that kind of go about their business and do a lot of things. And they heard the scuffle and they heard the shuffle and came in and and basically removed this man. You know, Um, you have many run-ins with people that feel entitled to uh, celebration after they die when in all actuality they've done nothing to deserve like you know basically nothing to deserve celebration you have a lot of people that are facing death and come to find out you know this man he had gotten the news that he had a pancreatic cancer and it had metastasized and it was now all through his whole entire body so he had lived a life of being just a mean man mean to his children mean to his ex-wife mean to everyone he was known in the area for being just a cruel crude man he had no friends He had no family. No one wanted to be around him because he was bitter and mean and awful. And now he was being faced with death and he's realized he is completely alone and no one wants to take care of him. No one. It has to be him because he's literally pushed everyone away. Like, how do you sit across someone and show compassion for and be compassionate to? It was... That was probably some of the toughest moments in a job like that of showing compassion to people that you could, if you had the opportunity to reach across the table and punch him in the face. Like when I talked to his wife and she was like, I have a restraining order. You can call the police department. He's this is a no contact. He's not even allowed to call me. And I profusely apologized. I am so sorry. That's the reason why he had me call her because he wasn't allowed to. And here, even after all these years of him trying to kill her, in his mind, he felt like he had the right to demand that she pay for his services upon death. Can you imagine the arrogance and the audacity? Can you imagine? I remember another time doing a funeral service, oh boy, and working working on a, a remains of a man who killed himself. And he was a very, very wealthy man. And uh, he had shot himself in the face. This is graphic, and I'm sorry. It took me about two days after he was embalmed, two days to work on his body and um, work with another funeral director to to cover and work on and recreate a whole entire side of his face so that he could be seen. And he had such a tragic story. And he basically was a very wealthy man, powerful man, had an affair on his wife, she left, took his took his girls and left, and he withheld 
you know, any type of income. He didn't help her. He didn't help raise his girls, nothing. He left her basically to her own devices. He since remarried, got divorced, remarried again, got divorced, remarried. He was like married like six times or something insane. And um, at the end of the day, the whole reason that he killed himself was his first ex-wife, the original one that he cheated on, that he was cruel to, that he didn't help. She had found love and found someone who wanted to marry her. And her, his, his children, who he did not help raise, who he did not help financially support, were now adults and in college. And this man was coming in and was helping and being a dad that they had never had, was sending them to college, was doing all of these things. And this man took his own life. And he shot himself on his bed and he surrounded himself with his most valuable possessions. So on his bed were his all, thousands of dollars in money and in jewelry, and he had antique guns and things like that. And he, was, he surrounded himself by his possessions, and he wrote a letter, a suicide letter, explaining that he ruined and uh, destroyed the only chance of happiness that he had. He could never find another, and his biggest regret in life was doing what he did to the love of his life. And here he had like a new wife. Can you imagine? So here he kills himself with all of his possessions. He's basically disowned a family that he ignored and never had anything to do with. And in his own regret, writes a letter, not apologizing to his new wife or being regretful for his new wife, but more so the mistake that he made at the very beginning. And so you have this tension of these two women, a woman that you know, was trying to move on with her life and be happy and raise their kids. And she gets again dragged into uh, this disaster of a situation where this new wife is left planning services for a man who took his own life because she wasn't someone else. And, you know, how do you navigate sitting with family like that? And this new wife trying to wade through, like, I don't even know what he wants and having to reference the first wife, like, do you mind helping? And this in kindness, this woman who has just had awful experience time and time and time again with this man, having compassion on his new wife and sitting with him and helping him plan for the sake of her daughter. She, this woman, had her daughters at mind all of the time she was always consistently thinking of her daughters what's best for her daughters what's best for them they want it they they should get to say goodbye to their dad and so me and another funeral director for two days basically reconstructed this man's face and head so that he could be seen and said goodbye you know so that people could say goodbye to him his his daughters particularly and new wife um and It is a marvel to watch. It's a marvel to watch. You know, this woman could have uh, totally dismissed any type of compassion, any type of regret, anything like that, and basically told these people to go jump in a lake, you know, when in all actuality, one more time she had compassion. It wasn't about him. It was about her daughters. It was about this new woman that had no idea about any of this mess, about any of the things going on at all. And, um in kindness, sitting down and helping someone walk through it. I just, I couldn't imagine. I I found myself kind of placing myself in positions of people all the time. Like, man, what would I do if this were me? What would I do if I was faced with this? What would I do if I had to make this decision? Or, you know, time and time again, it was just, um, it's, 
it was in, incredible and sad and surprising and disheartening all at the same time to see people step into compassion for one another and for others or not, you know, or to make matters worse. Or, you know, I remember being at a graveside and it was these five brothers and their dad died. And you could tell it was major competition between all of them the whole entire time. And I was, all I remember that day is I was so mad because it had rained. And, you know, as a female funeral director, I had to wear suits all the time. And for the most part, I had to wear high heels. So I was in the gravesite. And usually the grave diggers are nice to me and they would lay down wood so I could walk on wood or they had laid down carpet or something and I could walk on it. But today they couldn't and my heels just kept sinking in the mud. And I remember just having to like yank my feet up to walk because my heels would just keep sinking in the mud and I was just getting so annoyed. And I was just annoyed in general at these. It was a very hard service. These brothers wouldn't get along. They, for the sake of just not being compliant with one another, would kind of... um, play the devil's advocate in planning services. They argued about what should happen. No one would side with anyone or two brothers would side against the others. And it was just a constant fight from the beginning. And I can remember just being like, the light is at the end of the tunnel here. Uh, We're going to bury this man, pay last respects, and I'm out. I don't have to deal with this family anymore. I'm done. And I was just annoyed. I was, it was wet and rainy and my, you know, my uh, suit pants were kind of like sucking up water. So like the, there was an inch of like wet pant and my heels were sinking in the mud and I was just annoyed. And I remember just standing in the back of the tent and we were at the graveside and, you know, people are paying their last respects and there's a minister there and he's kind of doing last rites and praying and, and that sort of a thing. And one of the brothers leans over and says, um, you killed dad. It was you. It was what you did to him. You, because of your behavior, you know, dad's life was short and his heart stopped because of you. You know, what a terrible thing to throw at somebody. What a terrible accusation um, to throw in somebody's general direction. And I can remember that brother standing up and walking over and hauling off and punching this guy square in the face. And then another brother jumps up and pulls him off of his first brother. And then another brother jumps up and pushes that brother to the ground like, don't you touch him. And then before you know it, there is a like a total fight uh, between these brothers over their father and over obvious tension and bad family blood and bad history that I didn't know anything about, obviously, like this is way bigger than anybody sitting here, you know, and there's wives screaming like, don't you touch him and get your hands off of him. And it was just this whole entire brawl breaks out under this tent as the minister is trying to like, guys, guys, get it together. Come on, sit down, come on. And fighting. And I literally like, I didn't know what else to do. And like a child, I like just... I guess I was throwing a temper tantrum and I became a mom all at at the same time. I like as loud as I could, I stomped my foot, which doesn't even do anything. I remember stomping my heel right in the mud, which just made me so mad. And I just screamed. I'm going to back up from my my uh, my mic. But I screamed enough. And I remember they all just stopped in their heels. I guess it was some sort of a mom voice. And they all looked at me and I said, you know, I I said this and now I would never say it because I would never want to shame anybody but I said you should be ashamed of yourself 
how dare I said, look at your mother. Look what you're doing. Her mother was just sitting in the corner, just sobbing, like, why is this happening? He said, you should be ashamed. And I point, I said, you go over there and you go sit. And I kind of basically put them all in time out. And they listened to me. I don't know why. These men were like big men. They Nobody had to listen to me. They all literally went to their seats. I pointed to the, you know, the pastor and said, proceed. Like, okay, let's wrap it up. I'm ready to go home. <laughs> I was so mad. They proceeded. They lowered the casket. I jumped in the hearse and that was it. I was done. But like how sad that at the end of the day, the memory of everybody being at that funeral had nothing to do with the man going into the ground. It had nothing to do with an honor of a life. It had nothing to do with memory of who he was and what he was like. What they remembered was the hurt and the competition and the accusation between brother to brother. It was such a shame. It was just so sad. And so it kind of made me very aware of my approach to people. Like I don't ever want to be a person that somebody walks away from and is disheartened, hurt, wounded. You know, I I tried to make it a point of like, I want to leave every encounter with someone so that this won't happen. I don't want there to be this type of discord, this type of fighting and this type of just you know, uh, opinion, you know, when I die and I, and not even when I die or just in general, I think, you know, we can move on. I've lived a lot of places. I've moved from state to state. You know, my, my whole thing is like, Lord, let me be someone that when people leave my presence, they are encouraged, they are edified, they feel good about themselves. And, um, I walk away and they know I'm their friend and they know that I love them and they know that I care for them. So, as I say all the time of every one of these uh, episodes, let me, can I just encourage you that, um, that you start to pay attention to the encounters that you have with people. Uh, you can't control how people behave toward you, but you can definitely control your behavior. And so let me just encourage you to, uh, to practice being edifying, practice being encouraging, and practice um, leaving pres- the presence of someone and letting them know that you love them, you care for them. Uh, you want good things for them because we actually don't know uh, what tomorrow brings. We don't know uh, if there will be a tomorrow for each one of us. And I know that that seems like a heavy thought, um, but it is in fact the truth. And I just want to encourage you today that uh, never ever shy away from telling someone that you love them, that you care for them, that you're glad you know them that you're glad that they're your friend. I, I work for a company and I'm in management and I have to give reviews every six months of all of the employees. And I have made it a point that during the review period that with every person that I get to give a review to and sit across from, that I, not only do I give them the review from like a company perspective as a whole, but that I take a moment and honor them person to person. And I tell them all the things that I love about them because at the end of the day, you know, you don't know that somebody's hearing it. You don't know if they've ever heard it before. You don't know if somebody is in their life reminding them of who they are. And also, um, people don't, you can't assume people know what you think of them, especially when it's good things. So I want to take the opportunity every time for someone to hear from me what I think of them and what the Lord thinks of them and, and how I love them and want to encourage them. So if I can just give you, you know, a little challenge to... Um, 
to just to see what it would do in your own personal life to be able to start to honor people well and tell them how much you love them and tell them all the good things and tell them why you love them. And not only will it make your day, it'll definitely make theirs. Anyway, until next time, uh, see you later. Bye.